Well, all right, folks. Good morning. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. It's good to be with you. Guys, that's tonight. I don't know if you caught that yet. That's tonight. You got to come, all right? Like, this is the one you do not want to miss this. I think it's going to be really, really fascinating, really, really helpful. Now, here's the thing. Anna thinks there's a lot of big words. I know, a lot of big words. But she'll take the time to explain them when we have the space to do so uh, tonight. So that's at 7 o'clock. It'll run about 90 minutes. Uh, my name is Aaron. Super glad to be here with you guys this morning, worshiping with you today. I don't know if you can tell in my voice, but I've got a little bit of a cold. Um, it's just a cold. Right? It's, it's a weird time to have a cold, man. I was on a plane last week, and I sneezed, and I thought I was going to cause an international incident. <laughs> People were like shooting darts my way. I was like, I have a negative test in my pocket. Don't look at me like that. Uh, it's just a cold, but I do have a cold, so I'm kind of laying low here a little bit this morning. And, and if I need to bring out a little bass to... I can, I can do it. So if I, I don't have, plan to preach angry, but I'm almost sad because I feel like I could really use it this week. Um, hey, I'm going to take a second to pray, and then we'll jump right into the sermon. Father, we love you so much, and it's so good to be here in this place with your people gathered in your name. Holy Spirit, come. Move in this place. Lord, thank you for uh, your presence with us each time we gather. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would have a sense of expectancy now, Lord, to hear from you, to receive from you, God, for good things to happen while we're gathered in this place, in your name. And so, Father, uh, build that up in us, Lord. Build our faith right now, God. For the things that we're burdened by, the weights that we're carrying, would you give us a sense of expectancy that as we gather, those burdens might be lifted? Because in you, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Holy Spirit, come. And let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, all right. Uh, we are going to jump right into the sermon. Uh, and this is like a, it's like a little mini-series we're going to do. Just two weeks. Uh, talking about Deadwood. Deadwood is uh, not, not the TV show. I've never actually seen the TV show, so it's not about that. Uh, it's about Deadwood. So what, what Deadwood is, if you don't know, is... Uh, limbs and downed trees and brushes and leaves that tend to accumulate on the floor of any forest. You walk into a forest, there's a certain amount of dead wood that builds up over time. And that's because we live in a fallen world. And when you live in a fallen world, there's just a certain amount of death that comes from life. And when you walk into the life of a forest, there's a certain amount of death, dead wood that is accumulated there on the ground. And it will build over time. And nature has a way of taking care of dead wood. There are naturally occurring forest fires, not the devastating ones that rage and, and destroy the forest, but the low burning ones that come through naturally through a lightning strike or whatever the case may be and burns out the dead wood that accumulates on the forest floor. And if not, it begins to sort of suffocate the forest a little bit. The forest can't really breathe. It begins to sort of hold down the ecosystem in a forest. Now, um, we have our national parks and the National Park Service do a great job protecting our forest and protecting our forest from forest fires. And here's what happened. This is interesting. They did such a great job protecting our forests from forest fires that the deadwood started to increasingly accumulate in some of our national parks. And when you get too much deadwood accumulating, two problems, like I said already, it sort of suffocates the life of the forest. That's one thing. But the other thing does, when you have a lot of deadwood at the forest floor, that's a lot of fuel. So when there is a lightning strike or an errant spark or somebody flips a cigarette, when that deadwood strikes, there's so much fuel that now that 
that's not going to be a controlled fire. It's going to be an out-of-control fire. It's going to burn really hot. It's going to be possibly devastating to the forest, setting it back decades. It's going to run so hot that it's going to scorch and burn out all the topsoil. And out of that, the possibility for growth and new life is scorched in the process. So when you get too much dead wood that builds up, you're one lightning strike away from mushroom clouds and scorched earth. Now, hopefully you follow that because here's the thing. I don't think that we are really that much different, like as people. (laughs) I think in our own lives, there's a certain amount of dead wood that accumulates because this is a fallen world and there's a certain amount of death that just comes from life. Trees fall, limbs break, death comes. Our sin, our brokenness, our relational messes. <laughs> They're just, it seems like one, one is you, as soon as you get one cleaned up, another one tends to, tends to make its way into our lives. And we end up with a lot of baggage. We end up with a lot of accumulated dead wood. And if we are wise, we will figure out how to purge the dead wood along the way. Because if we don't deal with the messes as they develop along the way, they will accumulate and that amounts to a lot of fuel. And then there's one lightning strike or one errant spark or one flip cigarette and all of a sudden it's scorched earth. I've seen it again and again. When people don't manage the brokenness in their lives, it builds up, it builds up, and once it gets lit, there's no stopping the flames. It's full on scorched earth. We will find ways to address the accumulation of brokenness in our lives or we'll be tinder boxes. Y'all with me so far? You with me so far? Now, here's what they figured out in our national... These national parks people, I'm so amazed. I'm so impressed. <laughs> they, they figured out um, that they can keep the dead wood from building up by doing what they call a controlled burn. Or I like this phrase even better, a prescribed fire. A prescribed fire. So this is ironic to me. They did all that great work to prevent forest fires, and now they will intentionally start forest fires but they are prescribed fires that will burn low and under control before the dead wood has enough fuel to burn hot and destroy the whole thing. And what's amazing is, I think this is fascinating, after that prescribed fire, the whole forest, which was once sort of choking underneath all that dead wood, absolutely comes to life. The whole ecosystem just flourishes, plants, animals, the whole thing after a control fire, a prescribed fire. Now, you probably know where I'm going here. We need prescribed fire in our own lives. We need ways to address the brokenness and the dead wood that accumulates in our hearts and our spirits and our relationships. We need it or else we will be choked out. And one spark could be devastating. All right, the Bible gives us at least two ways to do that. And so we're going to do one this week and one next week. And I can tell you right now, you're not going to like this first one, okay? Uh, but here's the thing. It's not, it's not because it's bad when you hear it. Um, it's because it's almost completely misunderstood. It, it's a gift. What I'm going to talk about, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. But people think it's a curse. They think it's a curse. So let's talk about the practice of repentance, Repentance. Think about what you think I mean when I say repentance. Whenever I talk about repentance, I ask this question, so let's do it again. 
Let's imagine a scenario. Let's say that you locked yourself in a room for two hours. During, in that room and for that two hours, you're going to do nothing but repent. So let me ask you, as you imagine that scenario, just answer the question as you, as you would in your own mind. What would you do in there for two hours? And how would you feel when you came out after two hours of repentance? What would you do in there for two hours? How would you feel when you came out? All right, we're going to address that at the end, but hold on to your answers there in your own mind. Uh, a few weeks ago, I uh, talked about a theme. We've, we've come to this a few times over the years. I think it's very, very helpful. Um, we can think of our relationship with God as having two connections, two connections between God and us. The first connection is our salvation. And we can think of our salvation as this massive, indestructible cable that connects us to him. Nothing can sever that cable, okay? That's our salvation if we are believers, the second connection between us and God, uh, we do not think of as a massive indestructible cable. We think of that as like a little piece of thread or a little string of dental floss, something that's very easily severed. And that is our fellowship with the Lord, our communion with him, our intimacy, our closeness, our day-to-day walk with the Lord. And we have those two connections. And when one is severed, when your day-to-day walk with the Lord is not as it should be, that does not mean that your salvation has been severed. But we have to maintain and guard that ongoing relationship with the Lord. Now, here's how important, how central repentance is. Repentance is the key to both of those connections. It's the absolute key to both. So um, when we repent our sins to God, when we come to him acknowledging our brokenness, our need for a savior, we submit to him as the Lord of our lives. We repent and we are saved. And that, and that alone establishes this indestructible connection, this eternal connection between you and your father. And it's through repentance. But also there's this process of ongoing repentance of daily repentance. And what that does, it clears the path for fellowship with God in an ongoing way. That's what maintains that second connection, that easily severed connection. It is restored daily through repentance. I'm gonna read you a couple verses from Isaiah 59, and I wanna encourage you to just take them as clearly as they are stated to you, okay? Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, so God can reach us and save us, of course nor his ear too dull to hear. Of course, God has good hearing, of course. But your iniquities or your sin have separated you from your God. So created a distance between you and him. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So unrepentant sin in our life creates this distance between us and God it, cloud, it muddies the air between us so that he cannot hear us and so that we cannot see him. It literally sits in front of our faces. Repentance is going to God, humbly, of course, admitting our sin and our brokenness and asking him to step in and remove all the dead wood that is built up between you and him. And if not, you're kind of stuck in this relationship with a God you can't see and who chooses not to hear you because your sin stands between you. It's a big deal. 
this really famous old preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, somebody asked him, there's a really hot theological debate about whether or not anybody could, is a genuine Christian and whether or not they can lose their salvation. Well, somebody asked him that question, and that's another debate for another day, um, but I thought his answer was quite interesting. Somebody said, can a genuine Christian lose their salvation at any point along the way? And Charles Spurgeon said, no. If you're a genuine Christian, you hop on that ship, I'm paraphrasing, and that ship will take you all the way to heaven. Nobody gets off board. But that doesn't mean that on the first day, you can't fall down, break every bone in your body, and spend the whole trip in the infirmary. Guys, a Christian life without ongoing repentance is a life that gets so filled with dead wood and baggage that separates you from God. It means, at the very least, it means that you're going to spend the whole trip in the infirmary. That's so important. And yet it's largely avoided. We, we avoid it. We actively avoid repentance. And we do so for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think this is obvious, is it's a prescribed fire. It burns. It purges. It's hot. And we don't always want to go there. All right, now I'm, I'm going to build the argument to you for now that uh, repentance is not nearly as horrible as we've made it out to be. I'm not going to build the argument that it's good, great fun either. And so there's a sense in which we avoid it because it means we have to address our own sin and failure. We have to look it in the eye, and I don't want to. I don't want to think about my own failure. I'd, I'd rather look the other way. And the last person or thing I want to discuss it with is the person against whom I've sinned. So there's a sense in which we avoid it for those reasons. And another reason why we avoid it is because I think by default, we think of repentance in Old Testament forms and through Old Testament lenses. We think of repentance in a way that does not account for the power, the efficacy of the cross of Jesus. So here's the thing. If you're a church kid, you've read through the Old Testament, or maybe you hear about this at Sunday school over the years, um, you will, especially in the Old Testament, you'll hear about repentance. You hear a lot about repentance. And then occasionally you'll hear about something where you would see people who repent in sackcloth and ashes. Does that ring familiar for any of you guys? We're going to repent in sackcloth and ashes. That is an exclusively Old Testament idea. It's not in the New Testament, but I remember growing up in church and hearing about repentance and hearing about repentance in sackcloth and ashes, and I pretty much figured out that you've got regular repentance for regular sin, and then you've got uber repentance for uber sin, and that's repenting in sackcloth and ashes. That means God's had it up to here, and the whole thing's about to go kaplow. So you got to really dig in, and you can't just repent. You got to uber repent. You repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, um, I, I want to pick that apart for just a minute here. Um, so there's symbolism behind the sackcloth and the ashes. Sackcloth, first, um, is symbolic of mortification and shame. So sackcloth is like, a, people would wear sackcloth as a garment, although it's not clothing. It's like burlap, but even pricklier. And people would wear it direct against their skin. And it's literally painful to wear it. And so people would wear sackcloth in order to punish themselves for the sins that they have committed. 
in order to demonstrate to God just how sorry they were for what they have done. I'm going to prove it to you by punishing myself by wearing this literally painful clothing. Okay, with that in view, I would like to read you a verse, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So to wear sackcloth and ashes, now I understand none of you are wearing sackcloth on a regular basis, but to wear sackcloth is to punish yourself in an ongoing way for the sins that you have committed, and that's real common. And to punish yourself for the sins that you have committed is a failure to accept the power and the beauty of the cross wherein Christ, as it says explicitly, the punishment for our sin was placed on him. There's no place for sackcloth this side of the cross. The other reason people wear sackcloth was because of public shame and ridicule. When you uber sin and you have to uber repent, you put on the sackcloth and yes, it's painful and uncomfortable, but also you wear it around declaring to everyone, not only did I sin, I uber sinned and you should be ashamed of me and you should look down on me. It's a scarlet letter. It was saying, I'm the scum of the earth. Look down on me with public shame and ridicule. Let me read you another verse, Romans chapter 11 or chapter 10, verse 11. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no shame on those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, and yet we choose sackcloth. We choose to wear the shame of our sin, and that fails to acknowledge the beauty of the cross. So it's sackcloth and it's ashes. Sackcloth is mortification and shame. Ashes, symbolic of mortality and mourning. So mortality, we're... Not long for this world. We are going to die ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? 1 Corinthians 15, however, says that our mortality has put on immortality. Outside of the cross, yeah, you're mortal. Death is your lot. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, our mortality has put on immortality and death no longer looms large for us. It's just entrance into eternal life. And there's joy in that. To to repent in ashes is to reject the life of the ages. That's what eternal life literally means. The life of the ages that has been given to us through the cross. And the second, of course, is mourning. Ashes is a sign of mortality and mourning. What people would do is they put on these sackcloth, there would be a bed of ashes left over from a fire, and they would roll around in, obviously that would be all the more painful while they did it because they were in the sackcloth and they would be covered in these ashes and they would shout aloud in mourning how horrible and wretched and sinful they are. The Bible speaks to this. Isaiah 61, we have beauty for ashes and joy for mourning. The work of the, cry, of the cross, the finished work of the cross means there is no place for sackcloth and ashes this side of the cross. Now, again, I've never seen any of you writhing around in a bed of ashes and wearing sackcloth, but I've talked to lots of folks in the room who are all too happy to wallow in the weight of their sin, their guilt, and their shame, and the cross invites you to something much, much better than that. Now, maybe you're like a lot of people and you have a tendency, and this is very closely related to what I've already said, to see repentance as a form of punishment, like it's penance, okay? That's sort of the Catholic approach. You have to pay penance for something that you have done of which God does not approve or something that you failed to do that God would have you to do. 
And again, that denies the power of the cross. I want to be very clear about this. Don't miss it. God does discipline us for our sin. The world is really wired up in such a way that sinfulness brings about punishment. I'm not saying we don't get punished for our sins, but I I am saying this. Repentance is not part of it. And this idea that we repent as a form of punishment, instead of repenting as a spiritual discipline that gives life and joy, that gives rise to something I call morbid repentance. Maybe you've heard that term, morbid repentance. And that's, again, that's sort of sackcloth and ashes. That's woe is me. It's I'm the scum of the earth. Uh, it's self-punishment. It's trying to earn, your gra- earn grace and prove how pious you are. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like, well, you're sinful, but I'm so sinful. I'm the worst of the worst of the worst. And I roll my eyes a little bit, I'll be honest, because that's morbid repentance. But these are people who are failing to fully embrace the beauty of the cross, and so they feel like there's some sort of weight, some sort of work that they have to do to add to the work of the cross, because surely I have to pay in some sort of significant way. Morbid repentance. This reminds me of a silly thing. Um, when, I, uh, when my kids were growing up, and they were little, uh, we would fight. I don't fight now because Bryce especially, it would be dangerous for me to fight with Bryce. But we found ways, uh, like I think a lot of fathers and sons do, um, that we could rough each other up, but it wouldn't, wouldn't actually hurt any, any, anybody. Would get, I got hurt actually regularly, but he never, I don't think, got hurt, certainly not in any real way. And so you come up with sort of, you know, along the way made up rules to find ways to fight rough, but nobody gets hurt. And, and Bryce called our sort of set of rules for that wrestle fight. So he was little. I know it's not creative, but <clears throat> wrestle fight. And that means he, he hops on top of the bed and stands up and that gets us a little closer to eye to eye so that we can face off mano a mano. And, and I would pretend to throw some glancing blows and he would flail and hit me as hard as he could wherever he wanted. And I would take that punishment for a while until I decided I was over it. And then I would pick him up over my head as high as I could. And then I would slam him on the bed, not drop him, like you catch him on the way down and slam him on the bed as hard as I could. And he would bounce up really high and he would laugh hysterically and it was great fun. And we would do this over and over and over again until daddy got sore. And that's what we would do. And one day we were doing this. I remember Bryce was six years old and uh, we, were, we were frothy, man. We had been doing it for quite a while and I was already exhausted. And uh, my little girl Bree walks in. She was four at the time. And she walks in and she's like really like doing it, you know? <laughs> you know? And she's like, da-da. And I'm like, hey, baby. She goes, I want wrestle fight. And she's really putting on the, like the baby talk. Like she could speak a lot more clearly than she was choosing to at that moment, but she was playing a game, you know? She goes, I want wrestle fight. And I was like, all right, baby, let's go. And she goes, uh, dad, dad, you have to be gentle. I'm a girl. <laughs> and I was like, whatever, let's go. Get on here. Come on. I'm not taking that. And so she hops up on the bed and I'm at the foot of the bed and she goes all the way to the head of the bed. Like she's, you know, she's afraid, you know, she doesn't want to get hurt. She's all dainty. Okay. If you know Brie, that's nonsense. Okay. But she's just all dainty. And she goes, be gentle, daddy. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to hurt you. Let's go. And she goes, okay, daddy. And Rice is standing next to me. And we're just like waiting. Like, is she going to engage or not? And then all of a sudden, y'all, this look of fury comes over her face. She throws out her arms. She starts screaming like a band. She's like, ah! 
And she's flailing and punching and biting and clawing and scratching. And, and like she attacks me like with the fury of a thousand suns. And Bryce and I are like, oh, we're terrified. She just comes like crazy. Like it was insane. And I did not let it last long because I was hurting a lot everywhere all at once. And I was like, enough of this. And so I picked her up real high and she goes, wait, wait, wait. Da-da. Be gentle. <laughs> I'm a girl, and I slammed her on the bed as hard as I could. She bounced. I was like, don't give me that girl stuff. Come on now. And she liked it, and then we, then we wrestle fought with her too. So here's the thing. Believe it or not, there's something about that that reminds me of morbid repentance, and here's how it works. And this is the condemning lies of Satan himself. And that mirrors morbid repentance in this way. Your guilt, your shame, because you, here's the thing. You're, you've been around for every horrible thing you've ever done, right? You're the common denominator to all the terrible things. And your guilt and your shame, the weight of that, it will attack you with the fury of a thousand suns, relentlessly with everything it has. It will attack you to make you feel miserable and small. And then it will insist that you have no right to defend yourself or to fight back. It attacks you with fury and then says, now who do you think you are? You did those things. I know you did those things. You failed in all those ways. You're horrible in all these ways. You have no right whatsoever to defend yourself or to fight back. So you sit there and take it. You wallow in it. You wallow in it. This is what the enemy would have repentance be for you. And that's defaulting to sackcloth and ashes. That's morbid repentance. And it reveals a lack of faith in the power, the beauty of the cross. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. I want you to think about what that word means. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I'm saying. The work that Jesus did on the cross makes his forgiveness of your sins just and right. You do not have to put on some sort of ridiculous uber religious show to convince Jesus to do the right and just thing. He died so that he could forgive you and restore you. He does not need to be coerced into giving you the thing that he died for you to have and groveling, and begging, and sackcloth, and ashes, and woe is me, and how could God ever forgive me, and I'll hang my head in shame, and I'll, I'll carry this shame, and I'll carry this guilt, and I'll carry this weight. This is all just trying to add to the finished work of Jesus. He's trying to earn forgiveness, and it feels holy, it feels like the more spiritual thing to do than to just accept forgiveness and be free, but it's not. Instead, it is saying, your cross is not enough. It's not sufficient. It's not a finished work. And so I have to suffer on my own for my own sin. Now look, I, I want to be clear about this. I, we still grieve our sin. The, the more closely you walk with Jesus, the more deeply you will grieve your sin. But grieving is not the point Grieving is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. The grieving is the catalyst that moves you toward repentance. 
And repentance is not about wallowing in it. It's about being lifted from it. I'll read you a quote, Brian Chappelle. Repentance ultimately furthers our joy. Just as we cannot enter into true repentance without sorrow for our guilt. Listen, we cannot emerge from true repentance without joy for our release from shame. Now I asked you at the beginning, if you're locked away in a room for a couple of hours to do nothing but repent, what would you do in there and how would you feel when you were done? Here's the thing. If it's biblical repentance, what you would do in there is delight in the beauty and the wonder of the cross. You would stand amazed that God loves you so deeply that his grace is utterly sufficient for you. You would delight in your freedom. You would dance. You would smile. You would feel the weight, the burden of your guilt and shame being lifted off of you. That's what you would do in there. You would preach the gospel to yourself and you would believe it and you would accept it, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of God, and it would restore the joy of your salvation. And afterwards, you'd feel absolutely incredible. You would feel amazing. I wonder if you remember this happened a few weeks ago. Um, there was this sheep that got away. This was in Australia. Um, and it was away from its owner. This was a tagged sheep. This sheep belonged to somebody. Um, but it was on its own for a long time and somehow managed to survive. And in the process, 75 pounds of wool and various sundries were being carried around by this poor little animal. Then it was discovered and it was trimmed and set free from all that. There's the after. <laughs> Do you guys see this online? You should Google it. It's pretty cool. It's actually just a few weeks ago. So here's the thing. That, if I've ever seen one, is a pictorial representation of the before and after of true biblical repentance. Now, I'm not going to tell you that old boy over here just had a great time while he was being sheared. But I will tell you, and this is part of the report, is he leapt and danced like crazy when it was done. That's biblical repentance. And it's so powerful. It's so powerful, and yet we avoid it. Um... One of the things that makes it so wonderful, and I'm about done here, um, is through repentance, conviction and condemnation get sorted out. Conviction and condemnations are two words that are like, they're like opposites, but they're so similar and there's so much overlap. It's really hard to, because they both feel really bad. It's hard to know which is which. I'll quickly define each for you. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, and it is a denouncement of your sin. Condemnation comes from Satan himself, 
And it is a denouncement of you because of your sin. And knowing the difference between the two, parsing the two out, is the difference between like freedom and slavery as a believer. And with genuine repentance, that all gets sorted out. With genuine repentance, we get reminded of what Christ said, or what Paul wrote about Christ, Romans 8, 1, that in, for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is not a thing for those who believe because they're absolutely accepted. There is nothing we can possibly do to make him love us any more or to make him love us any less. And with that in mind, we need desperately a prescribed fire. A prescribed fire. Repentance. To burn away the dead wood that accumulates between us and him. That keeps us from seeing his face. Him from hearing our voice. That clears the way so that nothing will stand between us but love. And we have access to the Father. And the intimacy, the joy that comes from him. Now we're going to wrap up here. Jacob's going to come on up and Help us out just a little bit. As we do, um, I just want to remind you once again quickly of these, these two connections that we have to God. Um, our salvation and our fellowship. Repentance being the key to each. For those who don't yet know Jesus as their Lord, the word is come and repent and be saved. Turn to him, admitting your brokenness, your weakness, your need for a savior. And he will welcome you, he will forgive you, and he will create this indestructible connection between the two of you that brings you eternal life. The key to that is repentance. And so maybe you'd say, I don't, I don't know for sure that I've ever done that. I've ever really like laid down my whole life and said, God, I'm yours. Please take away my sin, I acknowledge it. I acknowledge that you're the answer. I want to follow you as Lord. To you, I would say, repent and be saved. I plead with you, repent, be saved. But there's this other kind of ongoing repentance, the daily kind, whereby we clear out the dead wood, the inevitable certain amount of death that comes from life in this fallen world. The dead wood that creates distance between us and God, that obscures our view of him, keeps us from walking intimately with him and you might be here and say you know what I know Jesus is my savior I know I've repented been delivered and given eternal life but I don't have an ongoing practice of repentance and there's a lot of dead wood that's built up and the reality of my sin is increasingly obscuring my view of him I can't hear him like I used to hear him. I don't walk closely like with him like I once did. And if so, I would invite you to repent, to institute a practice of repentance that clears the path and makes straight the path between you and him. Let me take a moment to pray and get us started in that direction. Then we'll have a moment of Selah where you can pray on your own. Lord, we invite you to come close to us now. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who would say, I, I, don't, 
know that I've ever really laid down my life, repented of my sin and found eternal life in Jesus. I pray that they would do so now. There's something so beautifully simple about it, Lord, that we only have to turn to you and say, you are who you are and I am who I am and I need you to fix it. I pray that right now, Lord, people would turn to you, confess their sins to you, surrender their lives to you, find life of the ages with you. For those of us who are already walking with you, Lord, I first I want to say, Lord, would you forgive us if we have thought of repentance as some sort of punishment? If we have felt that somehow our religious duty to wallow in our sin, to carry our shame, and in so doing, we have failed to accept the beauty of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, of that, Lord, we can confess. We repent. And Lord, right now, I just ask that you to speak to each person individually with a simple yes or no. Do I have a practice of repentance? A prescribed fire that clears out the deadwood between me and the Lord so that I walk in holiness before him, in obedience to him, and trust of him. the answer is yes. I pray that delight and joy and peace would wash over them as they feel the satisfaction of an intimate relationship with you. But if it's anything less than that, Lord, would you challenge them? Challenge us. To have the courage to come to you and face you with a full awareness of our sin and guilt allowing you, Lord, to wash us whiter than snow. May we come to you, Lord, not afraid, but jubilant because of what the cross means. Amen. Have a moment to reflect on your own.